0: Okay, we're grateful that you've all come back in for our question and response time. But I think, Warren, the primary question we're getting is, what can I do to help?
1: Well, I think it's really difficult because people, I think, have this innate love of humanity, and particularly children, you know, the youngest among humanity. And we, when we hear about children who are suffering, we are biologically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically driven to rescue children, to take care of children, to wrap them in our arms, to love them, that this is, this is how we all survive. Um, and this is not a situation where you can do that. And so a lot of us feel at loss. So there are so many things that you can do. There are people who go down to the border and do border missions, and you can join one of those. Um, I know that there are several organizations affiliated with this community who are already doing that, and so you can go to the border and take blankets and you can you know take toys and clothes and things like that to these children. A lot of people can't afford to do that because of time or because of resources, limited resources, but what you can do is support other people in doing that. Many of you have gifts, that you have a gift as a lawyer, or you have a gift as an artist, that you have a way with words. Each of you can do something for these kids by using your gifts to advocate for them. If you are a lawyer, you can work on litigation that is challenging these inhumane policies. If you are an artist, or a musician, or a poet, Go on amplifiedthechildren.org, read the testimonies that they gave in their own words, and see what you're called to do. This entire book that your children read earlier was written by someone who went to that website and read the children's declarations and answered the call to amplify the children's voices. After we went public with what we discovered with children being warehoused at Clint. We were told, the public was told, that this was fake news, that the children were fine. And the fact is, they weren't fine. And I was horrified at the attempts to wipe out their their existence, their experiences, their stories. And that's when four of us who were on the Clint team came together and said, what can we do? And we said, let's put the kids' declarations up publicly where everybody can see them and ask the public to amplify their voices. And as a result of that, we now have several dozen songs that have been written based upon the Children's Declarations. We have over 150 pieces of art that we know about. We have poems, we have social media shares that that people have gone up. We had an entire panel of experts go to D.C. and meet with um, congressional offices. So you have to figure out what you're called to do, but what I ask is that you read the children's stories, you listen to their voices, and then find ways to amplify them because one thing that we can all do is bear witness. There is um, a lot of similarities between some of the policies that we're witnessing today in the United States of America and similar policies in apartheid South Africa and also in Nazi Germany. In both of those societies, people were broken up into groups. Their differences were emphasized instead of their shared values, their commonalities, shared experiences. In a way, that they started to fight amongst themselves and allowed themselves to be categorized. It was not a majority of people that gave rise to apartheid South Africa. It was a plurality of the people who were able to allow the majority to be divided. So that plurality could take over and subject the majority of people in that country to oppression to cause them To be killed, to cause them to be exploited, for decades. Nazi Germany did not give rise with the approval of a majority of the Germans. Again, it was a plurality. And we need to make sure that we do not allow a minority of people in this country to redefine our history in brutal ways and the way that we do that is to stand up to acts of inhumanity, to stand up to inhumane policies, to speak out publicly, to reach out to our political leaders, and for us also to retain our humanity by interacting with those who are being targeted and affirming their worth, affirming their story, affirming their humanity in a way that we do not allow one another to be dehumanized, that we do not allow ourselves to be divided so that a minority of us can gain power and create a system of oppression
0: for decades to come. Wow. Um, Can you tell us, since you mentioned this book, can you tell us when it's going to be available and how people can get their hands on it and and how it Uh benefits the amplification of the children's voices?
1: Right. So um, there have been so many projects that so many people have been generous with their time and their talent. And um, this book was supposed to come out on Children's Day, which is November 20th. We just had a conversation with RAICES. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the organization RAICES. They provide a lot of relief at the border also the national center for youth law which is co council in flores and we were in a conversation um, a large conversation talking about the rollout, rollout of the book on november 20th and they actually want to put together an entire campaign around the children's stories that would be a national targeted campaign to try and make sure that these children's experiences become a part of our national consciousness become a part of our zeitgeist So, it was going to be out next week, (laughs) and it's now not going to be out next week, but you all got to be the first audience ever to hear the children's book and to hear the story. (laughs) Yay. But all of the money that's raised will go to nonprofits that are serving these children. so nonprofits like Ris, nonprofits like the National Center for Youth Law, nonprofits like Project Amplify, and then frankly any other uh, you know recognized reputable nonprofits that are providing relief to these children. So you can go on any of those websites once you see this campaign unleashed and buy a copy and then you can do what you want with it. You can send the president a holiday present or you can send your congressional member a Valentine's Day present. So and make sure that people in your family that might not completely understand the truth about what's going on with these children in government custody, that they can have a copy of this book. That you can send it with those who understand and then those who don't, but in all circumstances, know that any money that's spent on these books will go to helping the, the children through the nonprofits that serve them. And
0: the arts provided by different
1: Latino, Latina, Latinx artists. Yeah. Yeah. So every word in the book is from a child whom we interviewed who submitted a sworn document, a sworn statement that's now publicly available because it was used in the florist litigation, which is federal litigation. Um, And I'll tell you about that if you want. Okay. Um, And then in addition to the children's words, the producers of this book went out and found 16 Latinx artists, including the first Latinx um, recipient of the Caldecott Award. I don't know if any of you are early childhood or teachers. The Caldecott Awards are awesome because they're awards for children's books. So it was the li- first Latinx illustrator to get the Caldecott Award, she did one of the images. And then every single page of the book... I can't do this and turn and hold the mic at the same time. Every single page of the book is done by a different illustrator. And so you'll see that there are a variety of art styles in the book. And it's because of the 16 uh, Latinx illustrators who who contributed to this book. So let me tell you where the statements came from. 1985, there was a girl called Jenny Lisette Flores who was being kept in an abandoned hotel with a bunch of unrelated adult strangers behind razor wire, and she was being held by INS, the Immigration Naturalization Service. INS strip-searched Jenny on a regular basis. There were other children who were also being held in similar facilities around the country. One of them in Texas was being vaginally searched on a regular basis. And Jenny's family tried to get her out of this facility, but INS wouldn't release her to anyone in her family except for her parents who were undocumented workers who were working in agriculture in the United States, and they couldn't afford to come forward and risk the the chance of the intention. We knew, you know, they knew that they were going to be deported. And INS tried to use Jenny as bait to get her parents to come forward so that they then could deport the family. The Center for Constitutional Law, Human Rights and Constitutional Law, had a young attorney called Carlos Holquin. Carlos Holquin had a friend up in the Bay Area at the National Center for Youth Law. Her name was Alice Boussier. She was one of my mentors. She is one of my mentors. And they said this is outrageous. You can't lock kids up in an abandoned hotel with an empty swimming pool and no water and put them with unrelated adults and keep them as bait to bring their parents out. And so they brought a lawsuit on behalf of Jenny and the other kids who were being mistreated, who were being, you know, searched, strip searched, and vaginally searched, et cetera. And this litigation dragged on for 12 years it went all the way up to the supreme court and all the way back down again until finally the u.s government sat down with carlos and alice the attorneys on behalf of the kids and said let's just agree that you're going to keep you the u.s government are going to keep any kids in your care in safe and sanitary conditions taking into consideration the unique vulnerabilities of children Not exactly rocket science, so what does this mean? It means that children are going to have beds. It means that children are going to be given access to water and soap, that they're going to be given food and water, that they're going to be given access to toilets and sinks because these things were not guaranteed historically to children who are in government custody. So they said, okay, let's agree that this is what you're going to do, and three years after you achieve these standards in government facilities, this settlement is going to end. Well, when do you think the settlement ends? ended? No, it hasn't ended yet. So a few years after they did this, they reached this settlement agreement in 1997. They said, okay, so maybe we can't wait all the way until the government actually implements keeping children in safe and sanitary environments where they're going to be cared for appropriately as children. So let's say this. We will end this policy, this settlement agreement, after the administration implements regulations setting the legal framework to keep kids safe and sanitary. So when do you think that happened? No, it hasn't happened yet, because guess what? Clinton never did it. Bush never did it. Obama never did it. Until last August, guess who did it? President Trump developed the regulations, finally, to keep kids safe and sanitary, except for he didn't really. Surprise, surprise. Instead, what he did was he promulgated regulations that said, kids are unique, and so we need to keep them safe by keeping them locked up indefinitely. Uh. Oh, yeah, uh, is right. So what happened was the Flores attorney said, hold on, that's what we call a breach of contract in legalese. That's not what the settlement agreement provided for. You can't do that. This bears no resemblance to what you agreed to do. So, Your Honor, we're going to ask that you not allow the the settlement to end because they haven't fulfilled their end of the deal. Just in case a whole bunch of state attorneys general, brought a lawsuit trying to uphold the standards of Flores. And there's a really, really important standard that I want to talk to you about right now because it ties into what we were talking about tonight, which is family. Under Flores, children who are in government custody are supposed to be released expeditiously. And that was subsequently interpreted to mean within 20 days. So they're basically not supposed to be in Border Patrol at all, you know, matter of hours, no more than 72 hours max. And then the government has up to 20 days to place them with their parents living in the United States. If a child has no parent living in the United States, they are supposed to be placed with another family member living in the United States. These kids are not supposed to be deported. If there's no parent or family member living in the United States, they're supposed to be sent to another adult authorized by the parents, not by the government, but by the parents to care for them. If there's no parent, other family member, or other adult authorized by the parents living in the United States who can take care of these kids, only then does the government need to take care of them. How many people, how, what percentage of the kids have Someone able to take care of them. Yeah, that 89% that we talked about earlier that night. So, like, only 11% of these kids need to be in government custody. And then when they do, it's supposed to be according to those Flores standards. So, at this point, what's happening in Flores is that the after we went public about the conditions in Clint in June... The court, the attorneys brought, the Flores attorneys, the children's attorneys brought uh, an immediate uh, temporary restraining order, which basically says, court, make them stop. They're doing something that's harming these kids. And the court ordered everybody into confidential mediation. So right now it's being mediated, but it's expected that once the mediation ends, assuming the government isn't able to agree with the children's attorneys about how these children are supposed to be cared for and how the families are supposed to be treated and everything, it's expected to go up to the Ninth Circuit and up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will make a decision. It is so, so important for all of you to exercise your right to vote and to get other people to register to vote and to exercise their right to vote because... The Supreme Court justices are appointed by the president subject to the ratification of the Senate. And so your votes matter at determining who makes decisions such as whether or not to uphold Flores. Flores ties into these children's statements because in those 22 years since this agreement was entered into in 1997, The Flores Settlement Agreement allows for the Flores attorneys to go into the facilities where children are being kept. And if it's a place where the children are supposed to be kept, we get to inspect the facilities and interview the children. If it's a place where the children aren't supposed to be, but they just happen to be there for a few hours then we have the right to meet with the children and make sure that they're being treated well. And that's how I've been going to these facilities and interviewing the children and conducting inspections. And when we have evidence that the children's rights are being violated, the children's attorneys enter those into the court record and make a motion to try and protect the children's rights. And it's those statements that became the foundation for this book. So Flores and... The the story behind
0: the book, all in one long answer, but hopefully yes. substantive. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think one of the questions we have is why isn't this still in the news? Why isn't it gaining traction? How did this you know hit? Why and how were you able to go and blow the whistle like you did in June? Um, and then why, what's happening now? It sounds like it's almost radio silence in terms, I mean, people probably think maybe it's not happening anymore or maybe things are getting sorted through, but then we'll get these leaks out of, no, more children are being separated, more than ever announced before, or things like this. Or can, can you speak to that?
1: Yeah. So, um, so part of what's happening, a couple of things. One is that because the confidential mediation is ongoing, I can't talk about anything new. So I've been to border patrol facilities um, since June and I can't talk about any of it. And I will tell you that the worst visit that I've ever gone on, I went on last month and I experienced secondary trauma. I don't think that I experienced a lot of secondary trauma for, for many of these visits. I, without question, experienced vicarious trauma last month because of what I witnessed. But I can't tell you about it. And that breaks my heart. What I can tell you is that people are talking about it. It's still in the news. It's just that a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it has shifted to south of the border and somehow we think that that removes it from us. The problem is what is now happening is that the United States government is illegally Preventing asylum seekers from coming into the United States for the purpose of seeking asylum. They are engaged in this metering process, which limits the number of people who can seek asylum on any given day. And day after day after day, the government announces in Mexico, we are accepting no children today. No children today. No children today. Day after day after day. So then what happens is many of the children try to join a family so that they can be, they can enter as a family, which opens them up to abuse, exploitation, etc. But families don't want to take them because they know that if they do, then they jeopardize their own asylum claim if and when it comes out that this child is not really a member of their family. For those families, uh, and let let me just say, in the efforts to keep these children out, we are receiving reports of Border Patrol agents literally standing on the border and physically blocking children from entering into the United States. In addition to that, the conditions in Mexico are life-threatening. We had one member of our team who went down to interview some of the children who are being kept in Mexico and before he even got on the plane to return to New York, one of the children had been killed. We have reports of the US government pressuring the Mexican government to target U.S. aid workers who are trying to help take care of these kids, trying to educate them and their families about their legal rights, trying to educate them about the asylum process, and the U.S. government is trying to get the Mexican government to deport the U.S. citizens from Mexico because they don't want Americans helping these kids and their families. Some of these aid workers were not willing to obey the threats from the, US, from the Mexican government, and then what they found happened is some of the Mexican cartels started coming after them. And after that, they decided to return to the United States. So I want you to think about that for a second. Imagine our government pressuring a foreign government to target U.S. citizens. I mean, that's bad enough. But then when you think about the embedding of the cartels in the Mexican government which is well documented and the fact that you then have Mexican gangs targeting US citizens all originating with our government, it is an extreme violation of civil rights and shows a corruption that cannot be tolerated. So what You know, we're going to, so I'm going down with a team from Stanford, Willamette, and Human Rights Watch next week to Mexico. We've got another team going down there um, in January. But we're not the only ones who are going. There are lots of other people. There are people in this room who were there last week and can bear witness to what they saw. And what they will tell you is that these children are being kept in horrific conditions. And the news is trying to write about it and, and, and cover it. But there seems to be, I think, in my mind in trying to understand why people are more tolerant of it is is that they somehow think that because the kids are in danger in another country that we're not as directly responsible for it as if we're abusing the children themselves, ourselves or if we're separating them from their parents ourselves. But the fact is that we're the ones who are forcing the kids to stay in Mexico and are implementing this policy. Now, let me tell you what I know about this policy, which is that these families are being, when, once they're metered and they're allowed to come in and claim asylum, they are then sent back to Mexico to await their hearings their hearings are often in a different location. So imagine a mom and three kids here from Honduras who is in Mexico, speaks an indigenous language, comes to the United States, files an asylum claim, is determined in some cases to have asylum, to have credible fear, and to be entitled to go through the asylum process, sent back to Mexico with these three young children living on the streets, targeted by, you know, criminal elements, kidnapped, held hostage for ransom in a house which her family in the United States pays for, and then released back into the streets of Mexico. Has to go to another part of Mexico on the Mexican highways to get to where the location is and then the, of the hearing in the United States, but on a different part of the border. And then she's told you have to show up at three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning with your three children to appear for your court appearance. At the last roll call, Because it literally is a roll call. I mean, just think about that. There's a roll call. At the last roll call, um, where I was on my last border trip, there were 250 people who had court appearances, and only 48 showed up. And it's because this isn't just once, but they have to attend multiple court appearances under this new Remain in Mexico policy. So you've got these poor, young Parents traveling around the Mexican border, and you all know, you've read the news, you know about the LDS family that was massacred last week. Like, this is not a safe place to be traveling around with children, and yet that's the policy that our government has adopted to send families back to Mexico with young children, often single moms, often 22, 23, 24, 25 years old, and then sending them to different locations around the border and making them show up with their kids in the middle of the night. And eventually, it wears people down. But somehow, I think the American public thinks, well, but it's not our problem because they're not in the United States. And so I think that, unfortunately, the administration has found a way to ease our sense of responsibility for recognizing these and respecting these families' rights because they have the right to be here in order to claim asylum. And then they have the right to be treated respectfully and according to due process even if their claim for asylum doesn't hold up. And yet we're violating both populations of people by forcing them back to Mexico and then giving them the runaround in really dangerous conditions.
0: We're almost to the end of our time. I'd like to ask you two final questions. Could you speak to Amplify Faith and what that is about since these are faith communities joining here today? And lastly, we have a lot of the next generation in both of our communities, at Eitzheim and Spark. We recognize that they will continue to be the inheritors of many of these policies that much of this trauma will last for lifetimes for the families, for the children that that are experiencing all this and our children are going to be the inheritors of a society that holds holds so much trauma. Could you give us any words that you would want to share to the next generation to come? So, Amplify Faith and then closing words. Okay. So, Amplify
1: Faith. So, when when we first created, um, you know, Amplify the Children, Project Amplify in late June, early July after the children's stories were being denied by the government, um... We were really focused on amplifying the children and we called on, you know, the artists and the musicians and poets, et cetera, to find ways to get these children's stories out there. We, were, we are all volunteers. We have, you know, no resources, no staff, um, and so we um, called on all of you. And, and, and the, the answer, you know, the response has been so appreciated. But then in addition to that, we started talking about other people with other talents and other gifts. And we found that there were a number of faith leaders who were trying to speak out against the abuse and neglect of these children. And the fact that many of us are familiar with the teachings in our faith that say that this is wrong, that we have an obligation to care for children regardless of whether they are our biological children, that we have an obligation to treat immigrants with hospitality, that we have an obligation to care for the widows, and that it's important for us to understand the universal values that can be found in almost all major faiths, and that these are values that define not just us within our faiths, but across faiths and across the country and across the world. And so we are asking for faith leaders to engage in a campaign, um, to actually create, <laughs> carry out a campaign nationally to amplify faith by reminding their communities what your faiths teach with regard to how children and families and immigrants are supposed to be treated. And so we encourage you to um, become an active part of that campaign. With regard, and and I've told you, Danielle, that I'm happy to put you in touch with Hope Fry, who is a volunteer at Project Amplify, who's trying to organize that um, Amplify Faith movement. In addition to, I'll say, in addition to Amplify the Children and Amplify Faith, we're also doing another campaign in partnership for for the holidays with um, Lawyer Moms of America, where we are uh, fulfilling wish lists for immigrant families, and so um, we're calling that amplify generosity. And then around Valentine's Day, we're doing another amplification campaign called amplify love, and we're asking people to write letters to these children and their families, and to tell them how you feel about them being in the United States, and about you know what happens to them, what's happened to them, and what your wishes are for them and their life in the U.S. Because we believe that what these children have experienced is not a reflection of who we are, and we want the children to hear from other people in America about how we feel about them and how they're here. And those will be translated into Spanish and also some indigenous languages. Um, so uh, we encourage you to be a part of that. And then the the next part of the campaign is called Amplify America. And that's asking everyone to, you know, come together from different groups and to find ways to redefine or to define what it means to be a, an American with regard to these children. Because I believe that these you know, this positivity, faith, love, generosity, that these are the principles that should be guiding us as a country. So as far as, you know, the youth, you know, looking forward, I have a 9-year-old and a 16-year-old. And, um, and I think about this a lot because I think that we are failing our youth in many ways. That, you know, what we're doing to our planet and the climate crisis that we're contributing to and our refusal to, to take these issues head on and to um, pretend that things are out of our control or that they're not true or whatever the excuse is, um, is, you know, is discouraging. Um, you know, so then how do we wake up in the morning? You know, when bad things are happening. And I think that we wake up in the morning and we have faith because of the inherent goodness of people. If you look at a baby, a baby is born to love. That in our simplest state, we are reaching for another human being, and we are holding on to them, and we are nuzzling them, and we recognize an interdependence that we have with one another. And it's only when we fail each other that we start to lose that light of love that brings us together from, you know, children are born from love. Uh, You know, ideally, I understand that sometimes, you know, conception can happen out of acts that did not involve any love, and I am sorry about those. But in the way that children are supposed to be created. They are born from love, and whether they are brought into your family through adoption, or whether they are brought into your family, you know, through a, you know, a a more traditional biological way, the fact is, is that they're brought into us, into our lives with love, and then once they enter physically into our world, they are drawn to us with this love. And if you love children, and you care for them, They turn into the most beautiful people. And it's really important for us when we lose, when we have somebody in our sight who is not exhibiting the goodness that is inherent to us, that we need to find ways to bring that goodness back and to realize that goodness is in there. And even if you're not able to find the goodness in everyone, If in every room that you go into, every situation that you go into, if you look for the goodness in others, you will find it. So when I go into these facilities, I have people come up to me all the time who say, we are on your side. We ordered more mats for the kids. We ordered more blankets for the kids. We're trying to get them extra food. We have gotten some food catered in because we need, uh, you know, uh, you know, fresh food. I, you know, there's there's one that I want to tell you about that I probably shouldn't, but you know, I. Um, I I had some say, you know what, we will go to McDonald's and get these kids some warm food. I'm like, no, not McDonald's. (laughs) Like, you know, God forbid. You know, but it's like even in places in which bad things are happening, if you look for it, if you ask people to show you their best, if you believe, if you have faith in them and their ability to give you their best, they are so much more likely to show you their goodness and shine their light. And so I just want to say believe in the goodness of people. And I don't know if all of you believe in God but I was talking to a colleague last night. She's with UNICEF, and and she does a lot of work with child sex trafficking in Southeast Asia, and I was talking about the fact that I was coming to spend the the day with you all, and and she said, you know what? If I did not have faith, I couldn't do this work, and I said, Emma, I had no idea that you had faith, and she said, well, I don't belong to uh, any religion, but if I didn't believe in God, I couldn't do this work because I have to believe that there is something larger than me, that there is something out there, some system, some force, some power that is greater than the evil that I see in the work that I do because otherwise it would be too overwhelming for me to keep going. And I, and I think that's true. My parents raised me in, um, in, the, in the Christian faith. And I didn't really like it at all because it was a fundamentalist Christian faith, and it was very patriarchal and it was very oppressive. Um, but there were elements of it that I really, really believed in, and it was like the love and the forgiveness and the service, which were the the values that my parents emphasized, and the faith, the power of prayer, that you know, the, the power of praise. Like these, these were the values that were part of my family. But it really took me to discover a a faith community that wasn't fundamentalist, that was much more open, that, like, emphasized the positive parts of, you know, God and religion, that I was able to start to lean on that faith just when I needed it most, which is when I started to work with a lot of kids who were experiencing sexual abuse, which was when I started to work with a lot of children on the border. And I have to tell you that, you know, between my faith in humanity— and in the inherent goodness of people, and my faith in God, I'm able to get wake up in the morning, and everywhere I go, as bleak as it is, I see goodness, I see compassion, I see love, I see service, because I'm looking for it. So look for that goodness, and you will see it, and expect it, and inspire it, and you will find it. Thank
0: you well. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Warren. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you to all of you for this incredible, inspiring time together. And to close, I want to to invite all of us to stand and move closer to each other. Whether you know the person next to you or not, just, just be close to them. If you want, you can put your arm around them or just be close to them. And I want to invite my parents who are here visiting to come forward And come come with your new friend. <laughs> come, come. Thank you to the two of you for always being at my side, just as you are tonight. Thank you to the two of you for being at my other side. And thank you to all of you for being on our side for being together for amplifying hope tonight sometimes it's hard to hear these stories and it's easy to feel despair but we know that together we know that being on the same side that hope and love and generosity can win And so I invite all of us to continue to amplify our voices, to hold each other a little bit tighter, our children, our parents, our siblings, our friends, our community, as we walk this path together. In Hebrew, we say, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek, strength, strength, to all of us as we strengthen one another. And we say together, Amen. Thank you.